Mickey. <laughs> it's Mickey's Halloween party at Disneyland Park. Mickey's Halloween party at Disneyland Park is on very special nights, September 23rd through October 31st. Visit Disneyland.com slash party for ticket prices and details. Space is limited.
And as I mentioned, tonight we have the storyteller and scholar, uh, Diane uh, uh, Volkstein, uh, Wolkstein on the show. Sorry, I keep, for some reason, a V wants to come off my lips tonight. It's Wolkstein with a W. Um, she is more than a storyteller. She's an interpreter of life, uh, whether recounting epics or fairy tales. She speaks from the heart. She's performed on five continents and is the author of 23 books, including Anana and the Magic Orange Tree and other Haitian folk tales. Uh, you can find out more about her at her website, DianeWolkstein.com, D-I-A-N-E-W-O-L-K-S-T-E-I-N. Uh, she also has another website, uh, DianeWolkstein.com backslash Inanna, which has a dedicated page for Inanna and also uh, an Inanna Facebook page. So um, if you stay with me after my chat with Diane, which we're going to start in just a couple minutes here, uh, I am giving away a CD of an interview I did recently for a global audience. And if you're the first to email me telling me why you'd like to win a copy of my interview on the topic of the sacred feminine for a sustainable future, I will send it out to you. And I'll treat you to some other interesting ideas and articles I think you might uh, like to hear about later that I believe are part of what I call goddess ecology versus Bible ecology. Uh, also, a couple articles I want to share with you uh, that uh, crossed my desk this week. Uh, one is a message to girls about religious men who fear you uh, by Soraya Chamali, uh, writing for the Huffington Post. Uh, then Tara Lohan from Alternet has a great article about how we move beyond the suffering and worker abuse of bad corporations uh, in this predator capitalist society uh, we find ourselves in. Uh, then William Moore, uh, my guest next week, has an interesting thesis that the pagan gods and goddesses were our ancestors. Uh, William's coming on the show uh, next Thursday, but I'll give you a preview of some of his thoughts. He says we need an ISIS revolution. Um, and if you tuned in hoping to hear Laura Truxler tonight uh, discussing sacred feminine and Mormonism, well, she's been very, very ill for the last uh, couple weeks, and we uh, are going to reschedule her interview, but she will be back. So I apologize that she is not with us tonight. Um, so remember, uh, you can catch any show from the archives. If you can't listen live, uh, you can listen via iTunes as well. Uh, and if you do want to chat with one of my guests, you can call in. You're welcome to do so. Uh, the number to call is 718-766-4662. And when we get to a natural stopping point in the conversation, if I see you on the switchboard, I will uh, jump in and identify you by your area code and uh, give you a, a chance to um, you know, to ask your question or make your comment. So uh, I think that's probably about all the housekeeping I have to do. Uh, and now I can finally get to my wonderful guest, uh, uh, Diana. And and she's patiently waiting there, I know. Hi, Diana. I'm not, I, I'm actually enjoying your voice so much that I, I, um, I don't mind if you continue to speak. That's fine <laughs> with me. Well, you know what? When we finish our chat, you can stay on with me and hear the rest of the show if you like. You're welcome to do that. <laughs> so I guess, Diana, our, our topic tonight, Inanna, spiritual warrior, approaches the god of wisdom. Now, right. Um, what does that mean exactly? That has me a little bit, um, you know, it sounds kind of provocative. Approaches the God of Wisdom. Well, let me talk a little bit about who Inanna is and what culture she's from, and uh, then we can 
arrive at this moment as she's approaching the God of Wisdom. Okay. Um, her text is actually the oldest literature we have. So any of you who are listening might think, well, is it older than the Bible? And the answer would be by 2,000 years, yes. Um, this Her texts were um, written with reeds on uh, clay tablets, which were then baked in Iraq, ancient Iraq this is, um, from about 4500 BCE till maybe even, you know, the time of Christ, they were still writing cuneiform. But her tablets itself were, I would say, between 2300 and 1900 BCE, something like that, before the Common Era. And um, when there were all these terrible, terrible wars in the Middle East, um, the cities were destroyed, completely wiped out, and buried under the sands. And only in 1850 did archaeologists discover that under these big mounds were brick tablets, clay tablets, with writing on them. And then it took another hundred years for the writing to be deciphered. And first they found Babylonian, and then they found the older language, which is Sumerian, which is the language in which Inanna was written. Who is Inanna? Well, she was, as far as we've been able to understand from these clay tablets, the great goddess of Mesopotamia. So she was loved, adored, worshipped, praised, sung to by all the city-states in the area we know now of as Iraq and um, Syria in that, that area. Well, and you know, and let's punctuate that a little bit, I, I think, uh, Diane, because I, I think sometimes it's hard for people today to wrap their mind around the fact that goddesses actually were worshipped in that part of the world. You know, it's, maybe it's hard for people to re, to think back beyond the time of uh, Islam. Do you think, or is that just is that just me? It could well be. Um, interesting enough, in 1985, I believe, I was invited by the Iraqi embassy to tell Inanna at the United Nations. So even though they are all Muslim and you know dressed in that garb, they are really proud of their heritage. And one of the most awful things that happened in the Iraqi war, I mean, talking about it makes my heart, truly clench and in, in, in just despair is these extraordinary objects and tablets were bombed. I mean, this is our heritage. The Bible is based on Sumerian culture. That's where Abraham came from. That's where our laws came from. And when we bombed Iraq, we bombed that culture. And uh, the museum was looted, and these extraordinary art objects, I mean, as sophisticated as anything you could see today, just as the literature is as sophisticated and as humane, were destroyed. 
And, but the, what I was wanted just to return to, oh, you're about to say something, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say I remember when Iraq uh, was being bombed and right. we saw all of that on the news. And mm-hmm. uh, for a while there we heard, uh, you know, they were imploring the looters to return stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, I wonder, I mean, I don't know how that all resolved itself. And I wonder if the only thing we have left now is maybe what's in the British Museum because I know there are some wonderful things in the British Museum from that part of the world, fortunately. Um, but I don't know what ever happened to all of that stuff. And I remember there was a face, I believe, of Inanna that uh, yeah. was one of the pieces that uh, yeah. they would show that was missing. Um, mm-hmm. Did anybody ever follow up on all of that? Well, um, I think, although I, I'm glad you asked me, I can't give you the exact percentage, but I think a great deal was recovered. However, um, and not only the British Museum, Philadelphia, the Museum of Philadelphia at the University of Pennsylvania has an exquisite collection of Sumerian art, as does the University of Chicago. Oh, good. So those are okay. two places as well, and Yale. And those are the three centers where the work is of deciphering and translating is still going on. And, of course, the British Museum does have, I think, the largest collection. So when these were, in fact, um, collected and then deciphered, it was, uh, the ones of of Inanna, it was between Turkey and the University of Pennsylvania, a, a joint collaboration. And Samuel Noah Kramer, who is the Sumerologist who deciphered these tablets, is the person that I work with, to create the book called Inanna, Queen of Heaven and Earth, her stories and hymns from Sumer. So he gave me the literal translation, and then I worked on making it poetic and accessible and a story that you could easily understand. And is your book still available out there, Diane? Oh, yeah. It's still it's now going to be next year, will be 30 years that it's been in print. And it's, oh, wow. It's, um, there's not only the book, but... Um, there's a DVD if people are interested of the performance which I did with the musician Jeffrey Gordon at the American Museum of Natural History. I think it was in 2000, sometime, sometime in 2000 we did it, and it's a beautiful um, performance. So if you go to dianewokestein.com, I think slash Anana or slash website, uh, um, you can get the DVD. You know, I think I've actually seen that about Inanna. It's sort of performed on stage uh, where yes. Inanna goes down into the underworld. Yes, yes, that's the story. Yeah, yeah. yes. Well, well. Um, uh, just let's, let's. I, I don't want to forget to ask you this. You said you perf- you um, you talked about this in front of the, the United Nations. Oh, the United Nations, yes. This was, thank you for carrying your wonderful, I appreciate that. And the Muslims it was one of really the most extraordinary experiences of my entire life. So, um, so talk more about that, and I'm really well, curious how Muslims in, are, you know, uh, you know, sort of embracing this female goddess too. So. I'm not saying, well, that's the thing that's so interesting, <laughs> because they came to the performance that I did in 1983 when the book came out at the American Museum of Natural History, and one of the people um, from, I think it was the press, came and just thought it was an extraordinary performance because this is their past. This is these, this is their culture, uh, and although it's a goddess, it nevertheless, uh, you know, it's they're all raised with this culture and they know it, and they honor it and they're proud of it. Um, 
Except you've got the part of them who, you know, don't even want to acknowledge, like, the, what do they call them, like the helping cranes, and they had to pull the, uh, had had to pull, uh, you know, the other goddesses out of the, out of the um, Koran, uh, you know, a lot and Alusa. This is all true, and at the same time, you know, the ambassador who came and all of his, they came to the performance, which I did at the United Nations, and I began it. And uh, but, but but the night before, the assistant called me up and said, page eighty-two. So I look at. Wait, let me just tell you exactly because I don't want to mislead anybody who might actually know which page that is. But so um, he said, let's see, um, let's see which page it is. Um, sorry. That's okay. Uh, this is really interesting. Yes, he said. Page 37, and I turn to page 37, which says, My vulva, the horn, the boat of heaven, is full of eagerness like the young moon. My untilled land lies fallow. As for me, Inanna, who will plow my vulva? Who will plow my high field? Who will plow my wet ground? As for me, the young woman, who will plow my vulva? Who will station the ox there? Who will plow my vulva? Dumazi the king replied, Great lady, the king will plow your vulva. I, Dumazi the king, will plow your vulva. Then plow my vulva, man of my heart. Plow my vulva. And he said, "Uh, Do you think you could delete vulva? (laughs) Tomorrow night? Yeah, sure. Just delete vulva. That's not an important part in that uh, that little section there, is it? <laughs> and I have to say to you, Karen, you know, it was good. It was on the phone, you know, because I had a moment to pause, and my mind went speeding along at four thousand miles an hour. How am I going to do that? And then my mind said, "Let us not worry about one word. They are offering you this opportunity. You're a wordsmith. Figure out another word." So I began by saying, well, what word do you think would be preferable? (laughs) And what did he come up with? Uh, He said, just another word. And I looked at the text. Eraser. (laughs) Eraser. Ink pen. No. I said, how about land? And he Uh, said, that's just right. Okay. And, you know, it's fine with me because it's in the book. Yeah. But let me continue with the story. So okay. I you know, told the story, and here I am and at a certain moment, and there, it's total silence, and the first six rows are all men in black with beards, like, and every seat is taken. And they do not smile. They do not laugh. They, there's funny parts. They, there's absolutely no reaction. They look so grim. And the ambassador is sitting there, and he is has the, the beads, you know, that they have, and he's twirling them and they he's the worry i don't know if they're not called worried bees please excuse me because i don't know what the name but he's you know turning them and as he's turning them it's the, not the rhythm that jeffrey's playing and it's not the rhythm that i'm speaking in so we have three rhythms going at the same time that must have been a, what a distraction for it you it was the most difficult performance of my entire life 
Because I mean, I know as a I know as a teacher, when you're standing in front of people who you can get no reaction out of, it just sort of right. sucks the energy right out and of that's you. That's the truth. And so we came to intermission, and we went backstage, and I said, Jeffrey, I'm going to die. I just it was it was so hard, just as you said. I said. What's going on? He says, I think it's okay. I said, it's not okay. It's terrible. He says, it's okay. It's it's really okay. We're giving a really good performance somehow. And I said, I don't know how I can go back there. He says, of course you can. You can do it. Don't worry. It'll be fine. I get back on stage, and I'm standing there, and the ambassador walks in, and in his hand, he is holding the red book. Now, many women, I hope, who are listening will know what the red book is, which is, Inanna is called by many women the Red Book because it's red. (laughs) Why is it red? Because she's the queen of love. And so the book is red. The publishers wanted to make it brown. I said, no, that's an earth goddess. She is the goddess of, of the heart, so it has to be red. And he's holding the Red Book, and every one of the people around him is holding the Red Book. So I knew he was happy. Ah, And the truth is, in, on page 37 of the ambassador's copy is vulva. It doesn't matter what I said in the book. It says what it says. Okay, well, wait. I'm just a little bit confused. They're holding the red book. They bought it in intermission. Oh, so they that, okay, the so they got your book. They liked oh. it so much they bought the book. Ah, okay. Phew. And the whole atmosphere has changed. Okay. And they're grinning and they're smiling and they're happy because they know he likes it. Wow. Wow. And so, how did it how did it all resolve itself? And afterwards, they didn't. You know, they thanked me very much. They were very happy about it. And um, you know, I talked about it in the beginning. As for, as as for me, one of the greatest stories in the world, as relevant now as it ever was, and leading us to understand about the necessity to take the journey to wisdom and to take the journey to compassion. And tonight, you know, I'm going to talk about the journey to wisdom. And hopefully another time, maybe in the winter, you'll invite me to tell the story to compassion, which is the journey to the, through the seven gates. But, you know, there, it's too much to talk about it all at one time. And I want to talk about the May because we're in the month of May. <laughs> okay. So Anana goes to the God of Wisdom to get the May. Um, and the May is wisdom? Well, yes. We okay. will get to. We will see what it is in the story. It's, okay. it's spelled M E and supposedly pronounced M A Y. Although, I mean, this is a guess because we really don't know exactly how these Sumerian words were pronounced. Um, so the way the story, the epic begins because it's a collection, you know, of different stories, which is what an epic usually is. Um, is that um. It's very beautiful, it says, or at least my translation says, in the first days, in the very first days, in the first nights, in the very first nights, in the first years, in the very first years, when everything needed was brought into being, when everything needed was properly nourished. And at that time, a tree is planted by the banks of the Euphrates, and it's nourished by the waters of the Euphrates. But the whirling south wind pulls at its roots, rips at its branches, 
and the waters of the Euphrates carry it away. And a young woman plucks the tree from the river and says, I will take this tree to my city, Uruk. I will plant this tree in my holy garden. The young woman, Inanna, cared for the tree with her hand and settled the earth around the tree with her foot and wondered, how long will it be until I have a shining throne to sit upon? How long until I have a shining bed to lie upon? And the tree grows thick, but its bark does not split. So she asks her brother to help her because a serpent that cannot be charmed makes its nest in the roots and the anzu bird puts his young in the branches and the dark maid Lilith puts her home in the trunk. And she, Anana wants the tree for herself. She doesn't want these dark forces to be in the tree. So she asks her brother, who is a sun god, since she is the queen of heaven and earth, and Venus, to help her, and he refuses. But Gilgamesh, and many of you know the figure of Gilgamesh, volunteers to help her, and he does so by cutting down this tree in her garden. And from the trunk of the tree, he carves a throne for her, and from the roots, he carves and fashions a drum. So, oh, he, he in the trunk he carves a, a, a bed and a throne, and then she carves for him a drum. So, we understand from this that what she wants is her sovereignty. She wants a throne and a bed, and Gilgamesh gives this to her. So in order to get her throne, which is really the throne of wisdom, um, it's not a power search, but it's a search for wisdom, after she's given the throne and the bed, she goes first for the throne, and there's this beautiful um, first paragraph which says that she placed the crown of the step, S-T-E-P-P-E, you know, the, the planes on her head. Mm-hmm. And if you have a chance to ever see Sumerian art, you'll see these beautiful, thin, lovely crowns of gold with all kinds of golden plants of every kind of nature hanging, like little from the crown. That's the step, and that's where they lived. And she went to the sheepfold, to the shepherd, leaned back against the apple tree, and when she leaned against the apple tree, her vulva was wondrous to behold. Rejoicing at her wondrous vulva, she applauded herself. I mean, is that extraordinary, Karen? Oh, it, it is. Well, and, and you know, I'm, my brain is just going in so many different directions I, as I'm listening to you. First of all, I'm thinking about Bobo. Um, and, but, I mean, you know, this all came before. I'm wondering if, you know, some of this, um, you know, filters down to you know like like Baobo and Amaterasu's Uzumi you know where you know they show their genitals and mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. then there's you know regeneration in the land and mm-hmm. joy mm-hmm. returns and mm-hmm. and also the wisdom you're saying her throne is wisdom 
and it makes me think about Isis. Isis is the throne, and it was th- it was from Isis that the king got the um, the right to rule. And I'm sure, mm-hmm. and she also it's hands the same him Maat. Yeah, you know, she hands him Maat, which is you know to to rule rightly, justly, mm-hmm. and you know, sort of all this, you know, these sort sort of these same themes, you know, seem to keep running through. Um, you know, I mean, I don't know if they're connected, but it, it, it you know, I'm connecting the dots in my head. Mm-hmm. Well, I don't know Babel's time, but I think it was about this time in Egypt. So, I mean, I think it's somewhat contemporary. But we, but they didn't have the writing as early as the Sumerian, the, the culture of Sumer. Now, this, now you were talking about how old the Sumerian writing was. Is it the oldest writing? Yes. Or, or is, so Mohenjo-daro. We have a record of. Mohan, um, I'm, you know, again, I'm foggy on this because, you know, this is back when I wrote my book. Mohandaro, um, up in like northern India, is was Mm -hmm. that an older civilization or was that? No, I don't think. Oh, that yes, but I don't think they had the writing. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's 4500 BCE, but they didn't have. So here, so here in Inanna, them are we seeing embodied within her um, sexuality, mm-hmm. uh, the life force, uh, mm-hmm. as well as wisdom? Is is that yeah. sort of what she? Mm-hmm. Uh, you well, know, she's the, the queen of heaven and earth, and of love, war, and fertility. Okay. Love war. Uh, well, and also Lilith. This is curious. I, I, I'm surprised. Um, uh, you know, I, I, you know, my my uh, my knowledge of Lilith is, you know, she's Adam's first wife who didn't, you know, want to lay under him like the first sort of feminist. She wants equality. I didn't realize Lilith was in the Anana story. Mm-hmm. Lil actually means breath. Okay. Air. Yeah. So is it different? Is 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 um, the Lilith you refer to different than the Lilith that comes later in the biblical story? I think she's considered a dark force, and that's all we know about her. Okay. But okay. I, I would assume that it, it 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 is the same. Okay. Um, okay. So so um, so. Sh- so are we leading up to um yeah. Inanna approaches the god of wisdom? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I'm just I mean what I what I find so uh both surprising and delightful is that before she sets out she realizes her own power and her power is in her vulva. Mm. And then she says, "I, the queen of heaven, will visit the god of wisdom. I will honor Enki, the god of wisdom." In Eridu, which is you know still a city in Iraq, I will utter a prayer to Enki at the deep, sweet waters, and it's just where the salt waters and the fresh waters meet is where Enki's Eridu um, city is. And she sets out by herself, and then it says about Enki, he whose ears are wide open, he who knows the may, the laws of heaven and earth, he who knows the heart of the gods. Enki, the god of wisdom, who knows all things, called to his servant and said, Inanna is about to enter the holy shrine. Give her butter cake to eat. Give her cold water to refresh her heart. Treat her like an equal. And so they give her butter cake, and then they give her beer. 
And then they start to drink, Enki and Inanna. And they drink, and they drink, and they drink. And the God of Wisdom becomes completely drunk. And in his drunkenness, he says, in the name of my power, in the name of my holy shrine, to my daughter Inanna, I will give the high priesthood, godship, the noble enduring crown, the throne of kingship, descent into the underworld, truth, the art of lovemaking, the kissing of the phallus, the rejoicing of the heart, the making of decisions, and Inanna says, I take them. Wow. So he gives her the may. These are the may. And there's a list of 156 may. And I'm just going to read you, you know, a smattering of them to give you a feel of what they consider the laws of heaven and earth. And that's what's so interesting. There's no nothing about evil. Okay. <laughs> there's nothing about sin and there's nothing about wickedness. It's all about that which is, is what creates civilization. And that and civilization is the laws of heaven and earth. So he, Anana stands before the God of Wisdom and says, "My father Enki." The father is just kind of like a uh, like a kinship word. Has given me the May. He gave me the high priesthood, Godship, the scepter, the staff, the throne. He gave me truth descent into the underworld, ascent from the underworld, the black garment, the colorful garment, loosening of the hair, binding of the hair, the quiver, the art of lovemaking, the kissing of the phallus, the art of prostitution, the art of speeding, the art of forthright speech, slanderous speech, adorning speech, the holy shrine, the holy priestess of heaven, the musical instrument, the art of song, the art of the elder, the art of the hero, the art of power, the art of treachery, the art of straightforwardness, plundering a city, setting up of lamentations, rejoicing of the heart, deceit, the rebellious land, the art of kindness, travel, the secure dwelling place, the craft of the woodworker, the craft of the scribe, the builder, the reed worker. He gave me the perceptive ear. He gave me the power of attention. He gave me fear, consternation, dismay, the assembly fa- assembled family, procreation, counsel, heart soothing, the giving of judgments, the making of decisions. And reeling with drink, Enki then says to his servant, Anana is about to leave for Uruk. It's my wish she reach her city safely. So she gathers all these may, which is an incredible imagination feat, places them on the boat of heaven, and sails off. But when the beer goes out of the god of wisdom, he calls to his servant and says, Hey, where's the may? <laughs> And his servant says, hey, you gave them to your daughter. He said, wait wait a minute, where is the art of power, treachery, deceit? Where are they? They are the hero making decisions. And, you know, the servant says, you gave them to your daughter, and they're gone. And so he says, well, where's the boat of heaven? And he says, well, it's a dock away from Eridu. And and so Enki says, well, you go, and you tell her. 
to bring it back. And so the servant goes and says to Inanna, My queen, your father Enki has sent me to you. His words are words of state and may not be disobeyed. And she says, What has my father said? What what has he added? What, what are these words of state that can't be disobeyed? And the servant says, Enki says, Let Anana go to Uruk, and you bring the boat of heaven back to Eridu. What, says Anana? My father changed his word. He broke his promise. He violated his pledge. Deceitfully he spoke to me. Deceitfully he said, in the name of my power, in the name of my holy shrine. And when she spoke these words, the creatures which the servant brought seized the boat of heaven. So here we are. Now what's going to happen? How will she defend herself? Well, she's probably going to have to use her wits. Right. Exactly. And what will she do? Well, she'll use the bay that he gave her um, to defend herself and retain the gift. No, but he grabbed them. The creatures oh, grabbed okay. them. Oh, I don't know. Okay. <laughs> you have me on the edge of my seat. <laughs> Good. Great. I love it. Very happy. So what she does is something really interesting. And, you know, because the whole quest for wisdom is in the quest, right? It's not the getting of it. It's how you get it. Right. She calls on her inner servant, who is actually the queen of the East, who is her spiritual advisor. And she says, Nain Schuber, once you were queen of the East, water hasn't touched your hand, water hasn't touched your foot. You have given me wise advice. You have fought by my side. Now, Nien Schuber, save the boat of heaven. Which means Enki has sent his servant. Inanna, too, has a servant. And her servant is her inner warrior self. And this inner warrior self then slices the air with her hand, utters an earth-shattering cry, and and these creatures hurtling back to Eridu. Wow. What does Enki do? He sends a servant back again <laughs> with giants. And then he sends them back again with, you know, monsters. And seven times they try to take the boat from Inanna, and seven times Ninshuber defeats him. And finally... Um, they arrive at the gate of Uruk. And Anana says to Ninshuber, On the day the boat of heaven enters the gate, let high water sweep over the streets. Let high water flow over the pass. Because you have to understand, this is the desert, and it's irrigated by these canals. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. Let old men give counsel. Let old women offer heart-soothing. Let the young men show the might of their weapons. Let the little children laugh and sing. Let all of Uruk be festive. Let the high priest greet the boat of heaven with song. Let him utter great prayers. Let him pour beer out of the cup. Let the drum and tambourine resound. Let the sweet music be played. Let my people sing my praises. 
And so it was on the day the boat of heaven entered the gate of Uruk. The boat of heaven docked at the shrine of Uruk and the holy house of Anana. And Enki said to his servant, Where is the boat of heaven now? And the servant answers, She has arrived at the white dock, and the may are being unloaded in Uruk. And as they are unloaded, Enki, there are more may than you gave her. And it turns out, as they're unloaded, these may, Anana announces to the people, and says, I am giving you the placing of the garment on the ground, allure the art of women. So when you go on a journey and you get something, you always get more than you imagine you're going to get. And Enki, seeing this, says to Anana, in the name of my power, in the name of my holy shrine, let the may you have taken remain in the shrine of your city, Let your citizens prosper, your children rejoice, and your people and your city be restored to its great place. That's the story of Inanna. Wow. Getting the gift of wisdom from the God of wisdom himself. Hmm. Well, and, and, you know, myself not being an expert on Inanna uh, at all, um, I'm... I, I have to ask you some questions, and forgive me sure. if these, these are dumb questions. Well, I'm um, sure everyone's having them. <laughs> so you're perfect. So, okay, so this all comes from that cuneiform uh, writing. Mm-hmm. Um, do, I mean, do can you? I, I mean, I'm sure. It, okay, I'm assuming that. Um, I mean, could you tell what you what you had? I mean, was this religious writing was this just um art you know uh, maybe uh you know just storytelling i mean was there a way to know if this was something that people believed was a story of the gods and uh, the real gods and goddesses oh yeah of course yeah no i mean this is this is not um it wasn't just fiction there was rituals which everybody was a part of and um if you wanted something to happen, you would pr- pray to that particular god or goddess that would bring about um, a god of water or the god of travel or whoever it would be that would give you what you wanted. I'm curious. I mean, if you wanted fertility or a child, you would pray, pray to Inanna. To Inanna. I think I remember seeing in a book uh, when I was, uh, you know, researching that part of the world and the goddesses. Wasn't she? And I might be confusing her with Ishtar, but wasn't she one They're of the her same. symbols? The, sh- the shed, the um, the storehouse. Yes, yes, that's exactly who she is. The yes. storehouse. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And, and Ishtar is Akkadian, which is a civilization, somewhat as well as Gilgamesh, a little bit like you could compare Greece and Rome, and it came a little bit after, although it was somewhat contemporary. So so, so can we say Inanna is maybe the earliest known goddess that we have a name yes, for? That's correct, as okay. far as I know. Okay, wow. It has a literature based on her. 
do you, you know this is a little maybe a little bit off the wall but i i'm sure you've probably uh you know heard of some of the books i i i don't know if i don't know if it's uh i'm trying to remember his name i want to say maybe it's newman or someone um who who says that he thinks the you know the babylonian or sumerian gods were really uh extraterrestrial i know that's really off the off the subject here but i'm wondering yes, yes, if they you do write about that but but the gods are all represent different planets so they you know she comes down from heaven she's venus and at the end of the story she reascends to venus hmm so i guess uh, forgive this question but i'm wondering can i mean do you have thoughts about if you know this if you thought this was really extra extraterrestrial in the sense of we think of it today, you know, that, you know, these were really deities from other planets that, uh, you know, as a, as a, I don't know, do you see this distinction I'm trying to make? I, I don't know if I'm using the right words. Um, deities from another planet, um, uh, um, creatures or, 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 or uh, you know, characters from another planet versus gods and goddesses. I don't know if they're exclusive. I mean, it could possibly be true. I wouldn't rule it out. I tend to see it more as this is the projection of a people as to a energy, you know, that the god or goddess is an energy in that kind of form. Let me read you uh, just the first poem in this wonderful book. It's called Humming the Blues, and it's about Enhejuana, who was a priestess who wrote this poem to Inanna, and supposedly this is the earliest writing we have, her poetry to Inanna. Okay. And this is, this is what she said, the very first poem. It was um, translated from a Sumerian by Cast Doglish, D-A-L-G-L-I-S-H, and published by Calix Books. Inanna is published by HarperCollins, and still you can get it on the Amazon or in your local web um, bookstore would be a better place. Anyhow, the poem is, Sister, because Enhejuan is a, an actual human being who lived and a poet and also a priestess. But she identifies with Anana and says, Sometimes I think I ought to call you the Queen of the May. The way you toss light like yellow dandelions out of a basket, here and there. Or maybe I should call you God, the way you've wrapped the laws of heaven and earth around your waist like a belt, the way you skim over chaos like a quicksilver river. But I call you sister, because you're like the rest of us, opening like a pale morning, swelling like a storm, clutching the torch of longing to your breast until you feel life at your throat, until you're all dressed up in flames. Oh, sweet sister, you know it all. A woman's desire is deep, and you're the measure of it. Mm, that's that's pretty powerful. It's beautiful. Yeah, I think so. And so, so there's so much said and unsaid there. You know, she's she's woman. She's she's goddess. She's mm-hmm. um, she's wisdom. Mm-hmm. It's almost as if you you can't really know what she is. She's unknowable in a way. And that's why it's myth. Right. 
Right, right. And that's why it opens up everything. You know, there's no, it doesn't close it. There's no one interpretation. Right, I see. Well, well, tell me a little bit uh, about when you were working with uh, Samuel Kramer, uh, the 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 Sumerologist, uh, deciphering the cuneiform. Uh, what, what must that have been like? I mean, you must have felt like, uh, you know, Indiana <laughs> Jones or something. <laughs> Someone once called me Deanna Jones. Deanna Jones. There you go. <laughs> and I thought, oh well. <laughs> then I had to see the movies, which I really liked. Um, <laughs> you know, he reminded me of Enki. He was very short with the most dazzling twinkly blue eyes and always full of mischief. And I would come down to his home in uh, Philadelphia and we would work together. Um, you know, we'd work on the same poem for about three hours and and the same thing it would be like I would ask him over and over and over the same question is is there another word for that? And then he would just laugh and he'd laugh and he says, Go to lunch you know because I was trying to you know, the vocabulary is limited, so like he you know, sometimes wouldn't know and the word for he and she are the same, you know, it's like really difficult. So he would say, Okay, now I'm tired, go away <laughs> <laughs> He was so real in that way of um, he, he had no pretenses. He was extraordinary. He had been a biblical scholar until he got into this field. And so he had a very ardent and rich vocabulary. And he was full of desire himself. You know, He was in his 80s when I was working with him, and he was always talking to me about desire. He, he he just, I mean, I don't think he was in a state of lust, but he admired lust, and he and he always called Anana his sweetheart. <laughs> and then when we went together to a few meetings, he would, you know, put his arm on me and said, you are looking at Anana, you know, to the other people. Calling you Anana? Yes, he, he liked to okay. call me Anana. Which which was a great compliment. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and what a big responsibility. I mean, um, I, I would just be so, um, I would feel the weight of the responsibility of deciphering something so ancient. Because right. as we as we right. know, you know, I mean, right. everything is in the translation. I, I mean, right. we see how things get so screwed up when mm-hmm. things are translated incorrectly. You know, maybe somebody has an agenda or something like that. You know, we see how so you know how holy wisdom goes from being she to he. Um, well, one of the things that's funny is that. When the text was first published, it was 1942, and all that I read you, Who Will Plow My Vulva, was written in Latin, and the other things were in English. All so what does that parts mean? All were in Latin. Well, they um, couldn't write such things in 1942 and have it published. Oh, I see. I see. And okay. Can you understand the irony of it? They spoke it. They sang it 4,000 years ago. And now our... Our society in 1942 was so closed that they had to, you know, put it in a language that someone couldn't read. God, well, thank you, know, you God Abrahamic forbid that a religion. child might pick up the book. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, it, sure. I mean, it all goes. I mean, it's just, uh, you know, Abrahamic religions are against nature and sexuality and women and everything that was normal. <laughs> 
um, you know, it, things just got turned on on their head, um, and it, 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 but it's just wonderful that we can point back to stuff like this and say, you know, this was this was how it started. You know, let's mm-hmm. let's turn the page, turn the page back. Well, let's look at it. Yeah, yeah, let's look and the at it. And tr- that it offers us. Yeah, and try to, you know, recapture. And look at this woman and how extraordinary she is and how she's able to defeat the God of Wisdom. Yeah, and, and I so mean... this is a spiritual adventure. Well, and she's an archetype for women, too, rather than them, yeah, you know, being, exactly. um, you know, then the only archetype they allow in Christianity is poor Mary, you know? Mm-hmm. You know, it's almost as if, you know, excuse the word, but it's like she's sort of neutered, you know? She has no power, so to speak. She's just sort of this benign mother who has no sexuality she's just she's safe she's a safe mm-hmm. woman you know mm-hmm. you don't have to worry about her she'll she'll mind her p's and q's kind of a thing and um it feels it, i think it was um you know the I, I was talking to barbara walker and we were talking about the the bible and she was she was uh telling me about how the only women that were okay in the bible were women who were monogamous and over 60 you know, so that, well, that's that not true. I mean, look at Ruth. Ruth well, was a, a extraordinary young woman, and she was, you know, the great. I think the greatest figure there was. And what about Shulamit? I, I don't think well, that's true. Well, you know, you bring up good points, and I didn't. I didn't think to. Um, and, and, and as you're saying it, I'm going. Well, yeah, of course, I didn't think about that. Um, that would be something I'd have to. I'd have to ask her. Uh, well, she was talking about the King James Bible, and uh, so yeah, I don't, I'm not sure. Honestly, it's a very good point. But so so, but getting back to Samuel Kramer. Um, uh, and, and you know, were there more stories with him? I mean, how long did it take you guys to actually do the deciphering? And then you also uh, talked to Joseph Campbell about Inanna. I, mm-hmm. I mean, uh, what an incredible experience for you. Well, um, Kramer had uh, deciphered most of it. It wasn't that we were deciphering it. He, and he also, you know, sent me to his students and to other Sumerologist for other parts of the text. What we were doing is I was rendering what he had done into a different form of English, and then he was, I mean, it all went through him at the very end for him to say, yes, this is acceptable, and I kept pushing him and pushing him and pushing him, you know, each time to find out how I, what words he could give me to make it clearer to people because it, it just wasn't, you know, his... He was just trying to decipher it. He wasn't trying to create a literature for um, everyone to read. So give me an his example work was of that. Enough. I mean, can you, can you like, give well, me an the example of that? Yeah, like the very first sentence was, his first sentence was in days of yore. And the okay. first, my first sentence is in the very first days. Those are very different ways of doing it. Of saying it, yeah. Yeah. Um, but you don't lose the meaning. Right. It has to be. And so that's what the work we did was to not lose the meaning but to try to render it poetically. I see. I see. And then and then you said you told, uh, you know, you you uh, shared Inanna with Joseph Campbell. What was, you know, how did that come about? And what was your experience of Joseph Campbell? Um, well, I spoke to Joseph Campbell about Anana. I, I I was friends with him because we lived 
we lived two blocks away from each other in the village. I live in Greenwich Village in New York City. And I often spoke, we often ate together at this little coffee shop called Art Foods Restaurant. But he was in Esalen coincidentally at the same time that I was in Esalen. And I think I just went there for two days and he was giving a course. So when I heard that he was giving a course, I had just finished this translation of Anana and um, I told him about it and he was really excited about it because, you know, he knows the great goddess and so forth. And he said, come and, you know, tell tell a story to our group. So I said, okay. And I thought, well, what should I tell him? And the most obvious thing to tell him was this little section, which was, you know, Anana and the God of Wisdom. And it was just a really interesting thing for me because you may or may not know he was an alcoholic. <laughs> no, I didn't, no. So, you know, here I am again, like, you know, a young woman telling the story to um, a man, because we're talking again about the United Nations experience and um, slowly gaining my power through the art of the story. And here he is, you know, listening to the story. And I'm thinking to myself, isn't this a remarkable experience? I am telling the god of mythological wisdom the story of how Anana wrested wisdom from him because that's what the story is. So it was a very ironic situation. And afterwards, I don't know how we got on this subject, but he started talking about the fact that the downfall of civilization has really come about because women are no longer in the kitchen. If they Joseph were in Campbell the kitchen, was saying that? Yes. Okay. If they would be in the kitchen, then they would take care of the children. And since the children are not taken proper care of, they've lost their way and they have no morality anymore. And if the women returned to the kitchen, we would all be all right. That that I'm flabbergasted. I had no idea. I would not have thought in a million years that would be his attitude. Well, it's not so dissimilar to the story that I just told, right? Wait, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm not making the connection. Well, the God of Wisdom talks, the first thing he wants to do is give away the wisdom because of his heart. You know, he really wants to offer it. And Joseph Campbell, you know, has a big, big heart, and he loves to talk about Indian goddesses, and he loves to talk about the wonderful mother goddess and the passionate queen and all of that but when it comes right down to giving it you know the specifics of it Enki is not giving it away you got to okay. fight for it and Joseph Campbell is not giving it away you have to fight for it and so I see it was... <laughs> so so it's in a way it's sort of like he likes the idea and metaphor but not exactly. actually, actually literally Right, just as Enki liked metaphorically to, you know, be the big giver away and drink the beer, but when it actually comes down by to not having what he owned, he's not that happy. I see. Very so interesting. It was a fascinating experience. So, 
Well, it, 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 wait, and you know what? I, I want to be fair to Barbara Walker here. I pulled up uh, actually what she sent me, where this came from about the about the women, and I, uh-huh. I'll just read this to you. It's in Timothy five in one Timothy five nine. Paul says the only women acceptable by the council of elders are devout monogamous women over the age of sixty. And they're talking about in Timothy that women can't teach, hold authority over a man, uh, but learn in silence and with all subjection. Because Those are the Christians. Adam, huh? Those are Christians. Right, Timothy, right, right. Yeah, well, so it isn't the Hebrew Bible. Uh, well, well, no, I think this was the King James. Uh, I think she said this came from the King James Version. The, uh, well, the King James Version is based on the, I mean, it is the Hebrew Bible, so that's not... What the Bible says, this is what Timothy says. Okay. Because Ruth is not over 60. <laughs> okay. well bearing age. Okay. All right, so I just, I just wanted to clarify where that came from. But, um, okay, so um, so anything more on, on Joseph Campbell? You no, wanted I, to sh- I think it's 10 o'clock, so we... <laughs> Isn't it? Oh, that's right. Well, we are getting short on time. Well, um, well, you know, I don't want to let you go if there's if there was more you wanted to share about Inanna, Diane. We we do have a little bit more time if there's more you want to say. Because uh, I, I think you wanted to talk about you know wisdom. No, no, needed I'm fine. For... I'm fine. I'm fine. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, um, I want to I want to thank you for uh, you know for bringing Anana to the listeners and uh, for uh, for those who want to know more. Let me go ahead and give your um, you know give your website again. Oh, uh, thank it's you Di- so much. Uh, Diane dot com. D i a n e w o l k s t e i n. And so I guess to you know to leave with with listeners the underlying message of Anana um, is. Is um, is is it compassion? Is uh, you know, it, it, would that be um, you know one of the the attributes of Inanna that uh, um, you know you feel was part of you know part of our, our our theme tonight? Well, I I think it's her courage in this in this one in particular. I mean, her courage to go for what she really wants. I mean, one that she dares to pluck the river, the tree from the river, and that she um, dares to make this journey by herself on foot uh, mm-hmm. to the God of Wisdom, and she dares to take civilization to her city to become a queen. It's her deter. I mean, I think that's what is inspiring to me is her her courage, her determination, her devotion um all of those that that I, that's what I, I i see her in this particular story aspect as as the great heroine and, and in that story when Hed, in Hedjuana speaks about her she's speaking about her energy it's extraordinary her energy and and so the may is all of life and she's taking all of life and full of life just you know like within herself is the vulva and then she which is like the seeds and the fertility of everything there is and then she reaches out to the external everything there is so there's this great love of life as well 
Well, and and I think, you know, uh, what I'm hearing you say is how relevant she still is, you know, her archetype, her energy Mm -hmm. uh, for women today, um, you know, to be, uh, you know, to reach their fullest potential, you know, to not get stuck staying in the kitchen, but to fight, (laughs) you know, to fight for that, uh, you know, for for that, for that life, for that potential Mm -hmm. that, uh, that you could, you know, could possibly be in this life. Mm Mm-hmm. And I'm jealous of Enheduana for knowing her so so intimately too. Um, you know, does, don't that it make you feel that way? You know that uh, you know to be a priestess and and know your goddess so intimately. Mm-hmm. Isn't um, that beautiful? That's right. That's right. It, know her so well that you call her sister and love her so much. Yeah, that's so lovely. I recommend that book too, Humming the Blues. Humming the blues. And anyone who wants to write, you know, and contact me about any of the questions that came up tonight. Um, I, I'm very fond of Ruth. That's actually my favorite story in the Bible. So that's why, Karen, I think I know a lot about it. And yeah. Um, well, and I don't. I'll ad- I'll admit that. You know, I was sort of just parroting, you know, mm-hmm. what what she said to me. And uh, mm-hmm. and I mean, I know there is an awful lot of oppression in the Bible. Uh, you know, so it made sense. <laughs> it you know, it it seemed logical to me. You know, it's really, but, how you read it. Yeah. Um. Maybe another time we can speak about that because okay. I, I think um, actually Inanna is in the Bible because whenever they talk about the Queen of Heaven. That's her name. Okay. Anna means in means queen, and Anna means heaven, and she—that's her name. So they're always talking about her. So um, I wrote another book, which is called Treasures of the Heart: Holiday Stories That Reveal the Soul of Judaism. And in that, I talk about how, in fact, the women in the Bible are really extraordinary. If you read the oral legends and they will explain to you all the things that you might not understand from the Bible itself. But I do have to get off because it's past my bedtime. Okay. Well, thank you, Diane. And I would I would like to have you back to talk about that. So Good. You know, we'll, thank you. We'll, we'll email and, and we'll work that out. Good. And also and Kuan Yin. Uh, we talked about Kuan Yin. So, so yes. you'll be back, you'll be back a few to. times. So okay. listen, thank, thank you so very thank much you for, for your time. Thank you for having wonderful show. And, I really appreciate it. And we, and we appreciate your work. Thank you so much. Thanks, Karen. Good night. Well, if you're just tuning in, this is Karen Tate, hostess of Voices of the Sacred Feminine, uh, where we discuss goddess, the divine feminine, the resurging interest in right brain thinking and the feminine consciousness, whether the great she be deity, archetype, or ideal, and how these new values and benchmarks have the substance to save the world. Well, you've just been listening to Diane Wolkstein um, in her, in, with her extensive knowledge on Inanna, a spiritual warrior and one of the oldest known goddesses in her maybe the uh, oldest goddess and um, you know there was so much more I, I actually uh, I actually thought I wanted to ask her but uh, you know unfortunately we had to cut it short so maybe uh, maybe uh, another time we will actually uh, get to that so uh, we are crossing the threshold into the next part of the show, and um, I want to start off by, uh, before I get to those articles uh, that I wanted to share with you, um, I wanted to um, tell you that next week we have from the Goddess Studio in Escondido, California, Amalia, or uh, Amy Peck, you may know her by either name, uh, she's going to be discussing magic and manifestation, followed by Will Moore uh, talking 
about how we desperately need an ISIS revolution, that we that we need to resurrect she of 10,000 names uh, to save the world. Well, I'm certainly not going to argue with him, but he has uh, a very uh, unique uh, take on all of this. Uh, he believes uh, that uh, the original ISIS was an enlightened being like Buddha, Moses, Jesus, or Muhammad. She was one of the great lamps of the ages, um, and... Um, he believed the great work encompassing religion was based on her works and teachings and that the pyramids of Egypt and pagan temples all over the planet were the cathedrals of that religion, uh, that Christianity is a spin-off religion from Egyptian paganism, that Jesus wasn't a Jew or a Christian. He was a pagan of the ISIS religion. So, you know, we're going to talk about all of that. And uh, I, I think that should really make uh, for an interesting conversation. Also, if you're in Southern California... Uh, you can see uh, uh, the traveling exhibits of Aphrodite, Demeter, and Persephone at the Getty Villa in Malibu. I want to keep reminding everyone uh, that this is that this is there uh, because it uh, won't be there forever. So you want to make sure you put it on your calendar uh, and go there one day. Please check it out. Um, it's such a gorgeous location. Uh, this is the one in Malibu, right off the ocean. Uh, there are views of the glorious ocean uh, right from the balconies. Uh, uh, it, it's just an incredible temple. I feel like it's a temple to goddess and a temple to knowledge. Um, so um, let's see. I said I wanted to go ahead and uh, share some of these articles with you. And uh, the first one uh, is by Soraya Chamali. And I don't know if I'm pronouncing her name right. I haven't actually heard the name pronounced. But she's a writer for the Huffington Post. And uh, I find I like a lot of what she writes. And uh, one of the articles that uh, just came out on the 21st of the month uh, was titled, A Message to Girls about religious men who fear you. Um, I'm going to read a little bit about this. Uh, I don't know if I'm going to read it all, uh, but the whole article was very good. Uh, she says, Dear girls, you are powerful beyond words because you threaten to unravel the control of corrupt men who abuse their authority. In the United States last week, there were people who wouldn't let boys play a baseball championship final because a girl was on the opposing team. She'd already had to sit out two games because of their demands. Why? Did she, a competitive athlete and a member of her team, choose to? Was she being good and respectful when she acceded to their demands? Why were they not asked to forfeit their game? What messages were sent to her and her teammates? This isn't complicated. It sent the wrong message. Confusing messages, incoherent messages. You need to know what she should have been allowed to play and not have to sit out two games. These peoples and and others like men all over the world, led exclusively by religious men, are scared of you and will not let you be you. You worry them constantly. If you were not powerful, they would not take you so seriously, and they take you very, very seriously. You should, too. You can set the world on fire. It doesn't feel this way, I know. If that were true, you think, I would not have to sit out baseball games out of respect for religious beliefs that require my subservience and call it a gift. 
I would not be turned away from serving God with my brothers. I would not be taught that I'm an evil temptress or the virtue keeper of boys. I would not have virginity wielded as a weapon against me and my worth determined by my womb. I would not be spat on and called a whore by men when I'm eight because my arms are bare. I would not be poisoned for going to school. I would not be forced at the age of nine nine, to carry twins born of child torture. I would not have to kill myself to avoid marrying my rapist. If this were true, they would not pursue my they would pursue my rapist instead of stoning me for their crimes. I and thousand others would not be killed for honor. Girls, these things happen because there are men with power who fear you and want to control you. I know that I have equated relatively benign baseball games with deadly honor killings. But whereas one is a type of daily, seemingly harmless microaggression and the other is a lethal macroaggression, they share the same roots. The basis of both and escalating actions in between is the same. To cheat you and all girls subject to these men to teach you and all girls subject to these men and their authority a lesson. Know your place. I also know that there are places where girls are marginalized and hurt that are not religious, but all over the world these hypocritical, pious men and their shameful, obvious wrongness represent the sharp-edged tip of an iceberg, the visible surface of a deep and vast harm. They employ the full range of their earthly and divine influence to make sure as early as possible that you and the boys around you understand what they want your relative role to be. Where there are patriarchal religions religions, girls in dramatically varying and extreme degrees disproportionately suffer. Understand these men for what they are. Bullies do not internalize what they would have you believe. Your very existence makes them anxious and their anxiety is particularly high because you have something no generation of girls has had before. Globally connected communities of men and women who support your equality and freedom. Like guns, germs, and steel, this transformative technology which enables me to write to you here alters geography changes societies and dismantles systems of control it makes the world a smaller place and it creates even if slowly in some places positive change for girls like you you see until now these these men could count on indeed they could ensure that you and the women around you were housebound and isolated many of you still are but now there are millions and millions and millions of people who are thinking about you and challenging these men every single day. You have the speed of light on your side, and unless someone permanently turns the lights out, these days are gone. So although you might feel like you are alone, you are not. How do you threaten them, a girl alone? By being able, strong, confident, and yes, shameless. You may not naturally be interested in domesticity, piety, purity, and submission, and they rely on your commitment to those things to order their worlds. Their actions from one end of the spectrum to the other are designed to fill you with self-doubt and ultimately fear, either bodily or spiritual, because otherwise you and the young boys around you will be fully aware of your strength and potential. Because of this, they single-mindedly focus their attention on you, your body, your clothes, your hair, your abilities, your physical freedom, when their manners and morals are not universally applicable but different for boys and girls, you can be sure that this is why. They seek to teach you subtly through small slights and gendered expectations that you are different, weak, unworthy, incapable. 
The sadness is that in their perception, if you are not none of these things, then they are they are not strong, worthy, and capable. Capable. This is not an excuse, but an explanation. It's why they find infinite benevolent ways to undermine and disparage you, all in the name of God's word. When that fails, they resort to violence. All over the world, their anxiety is manifest in a spectrum of actions ranging from mild paternalism, respectful of proper boundaries, to deadly enforcement of their rules. Fear is why these men officially investigate Girl Scouts while perversely shielding child rapists. It's why they obsess over your purity. It's why they segregate you in public and private spaces. It's why they instruct girls and boys that girls' bodies are either shameful and dirty or sacred and belonging to men. Fear motivates them to teach that you pollute others by your very nature. It makes them intent on making sure you stay home and not be fully engaged in the world. It leads them to sanction marriage of eight-year-olds to old men. It convinces them that rape and its consequences are a gift from God. That's why they empower others to stone you to death and disfigure you with acid. Even beating the gay out of children, especially boys who are more like you, is aimed at you. Because if boys are more like girls, something these men believe is fundamentally inferior, then you can be more like boys. That causes ambiguity and destroys their carefully defined hierarchies, and that is intolerable to them. Fear is why they insist there is something fundamental, fundamentally wrong with you. Don't believe them. Fear is why they want you to cover your body. There is nothing wrong with your body, and your body is not to blame. Whether you chose to expose your body or cover it up, consider the degree to which either choice is defined by a reduction of your character to narrow sexuality by a culture that refuses to hold men accountable for their actions and requires you to either radically display ourselves for men's pleasure or withdraw from the world and be held in reserve. Either way, ask who is defining your worth and by what measure. Fear is why they tell you you are so different from boys. You and the boys you know understand that your bodies are different, but that you are far more alike than dissimilar. Threatened, insecure, adult men say otherwise. Don't give in, even if you're quiet. The differences these religious authorities exaggerate are simply pillars of oppression used to teach boys and girls that women's subjugation is natural and divine. Reject them and their ideas. This is hard to do. It requires that you individually be brave, strong, determined, fearless, and confident. It requires that you demand that the adults around you pay attention and change their behavior. This is even harder. First, and perhaps the most difficult to understand as a girl, is that women who love you and care for you often enable these men. This is what people say. It's just men. And they're right. Women support them individually and in groups in ways that have private, public, political, and societal consequences. But make no mistake, although women are the enforcers of rules, they have no real systematic authority in conservative religious hierarchies, and they know it. Yes, without their support, these men could not continue. But until these women are truly free, bodily, and economically, physically, politically, and their practical and spiritual salvation is no longer mediated by these very men, they will continue to support them. Enforcing the rules is a rational choice that enables them to survive the world over in unjust environments. You scare them, too, because you call into question their own complicity and often conflict 
within. Second, it is confusing that these, that these men say they do what they do for your own good. They talk about respecting you and your dignity. You want to believe them. They have power and authority over you, your parents, your community, your access to God. They're often kind and benevolent, and they love you, so they must be right, but they are not. They demonstrate their own hypocrisy over and over and over again. They say they know what's best. They do not. You do. Don't believe them when they teach you in hundreds of ways through sacred text, careful words, cherished tradition, hidden threats, frightening examples that you are inherently more sinful, base, and corrupt, less worthy, and in need of constant male guidance. Reject them. The adults around you may not appear to support you when you take your humanity to its logical religious conclusion. Do not let them off the hook. Do not let them use tradition as an excuse or say it really doesn't matter. Don't allow them to get away with asking you to sit out games, be a good girl, don't make a fuss, and put something on. These are microaggressions that result in macroaggressions. Adults often don't think these things through. Sometimes it's scary to them, too. You can say, there is nothing wrong with me. There is nothing wrong with you. I'm sorry. Go back. You can say instead to all of this, they tell you, there is nothing wrong with me. There is something wrong with you and your world. Otherwise, when you get older, these same men, the ones who fear and hate you, will continue to undermine you. They will seek to control your body, keep you out of the public sphere, subjugate you in the name of a narrowly defined family, create impediments to your equality, shame you at every turn, and justify your continued oppression in convoluted ways that defy reason and morality. They will investigate you for being strong, violate you, stone you to death, charge you with witchcraft, punish you in every conceivable way way to set an example for your children so know that you are strong and powerful use your reason trust your instincts seek out those who would support you and yes know your place on the field in the street on the bus in front in school at work and in public office you are not alone and you are brighter than the sun isn't that incredible? What a powerful, uh, what a powerful piece! Again, that's Soraya Chamali, uh, Huffington Post: A message to girls about religious men who fear you. Interestingly, there was just something in the news in the last few days about all of these Jewish guys filled a. Um, uh, a stadium somewhere talking about how the internet is just too much information uh, out there and they are losing control of the message. Um, I know I'm not really doing justice to that article, but um, it, it smacks of that. I mean, we see it all over, and that was just, you know, one recent example uh, in the in the news. Imagine a stadium full of men talking about how the internet is bad because it provides too much information wow okay um so the other article something more upbeat um and um i I think it's important because as we are going through this this shift this paradigm shift that we talk about as we see things uh that have been the way they are are no longer working or crumbling or brittle well, we wonder, you know, we sort of cling to them out of fear because we don't know what else 
there is to take their place. So this article in alternate.org, uh, which is another place I like to, um, you know, find information and, and uh, articles, alternate.org, uh, Tara Lohan wrote the article, There is a Way Beyond the Big Bad Corporation. And I'm not going to read the whole article, just the parts that I think you will find upbeat and inspirational and, uh, you know, give us hope that things can be different uh, as we, uh, you know, think through uh, how we can uh, change the world for the better for the most of us. Um, so here, here we go. Uh, as our uh, political systems sputter, a wave of innovative thinking and bold experimentation is quietly sweeping away outmoded, econ uh, outmoded economic models. In New Economic Vision, a special five-part alternate series edited by economics editor Lynn Paramore in partnership with political economist Gar uh, Alper Ovitz of the Democracy Collaborative, creative thinkers come together to explore the exciting ideas and projects that are shaping the philosophical and political vision of the movement that could take our economy back. Our economy, like our environment, is in trouble. Limitless growth that, growth that drives the profit-hungry corporate model today is ecologically impossible. We simply can't sustain business as usual and the cracks in our system are showing. You look at the Arab Spring. What looked like very stable regimes across the Arab world were suddenly shown to be completely vulnerable and brittle. And I think that we may see the same kind of thing in our own economy, says Marjorie Kelly, a fellow at the Telus Institute and author of the new book, Owning Our Future, The Emerging Ownership Revolution. Ownership revolution. What looks massive and permanent and invulnerable may show itself quite suddenly to be brittle. Maybe this doesn't sound heartening, but it should. The corporate model we have today hasn't always been around, and it doesn't need to, need to remain the dominant way we do business. There's no reason we should be swabbing the decks of a sinking ship. Alternatives already exist, and they're flourishing. That's under, what's underway is an ownership revolution. It's about broadening economic power from the few to the many and about changing the mindset from social indifference to social benefits, Kelly writes, which I sh should say to listeners, I believe, are goddess ideals. Uh, and under better business, uh, a common complaint in today's world is one of disconnection. Our industrialized world has, has resulted in less contact with the community. We don't know our neighbors or who grows our food. In the same way, we've lost touch with a deeper sense of belonging in place. Many of us have become disconnected from the soul of our work. The corporation worker structure today is a master-servant relationship. We're slaves to the company, working longer hours for less wages. Now mass layoffs to boost Boost profits are the norm, while the expectation of a career with one company is long gone. This transformation happened because the U.S. Business Corporation has become a rather ugly word, in a rather ugly word, financialized. It means that executives begin to base all their decisions on increasing corporate earnings for the sake of jacking up corporate stock prices. Other concerns, economic, social, and political, took a back seat. From the 1980s, the talk in boardrooms and business schools changed. Instead of running corporations to create wealth for all, leaders should think only of maximizing shareholder value. Ah, that sounds like Mitt Romney to me. 
Um, Our economy is dominated by a monoculture business model, Kelly says, driven largely by publicly traded corporations that have been built in pressure from Wall Street for maximum short-term earnings. But a healthy living economy needs biodiversity. We can find this if we begin to look around across the U.S. and the world where there are businesses designed not for maximum profit but with a mission-driven social and economic architecture. One of these models is the social enterprise. The Social Enterprise Alliance defines these organizations as businesses whose primary purpose is the common good. They use the methods and disciplines of business and the power of the marketplace to advance their social, environmental, and human justice agendas. That sounds like goddess way to me. And one of the defining characteristics is that the common good is its primary purpose, literally baked into the organization's DNA and trumping all others. Here's an example. Remember working assets starting out as a progressive-minded credit card company in the 80s? It added phone service, first long distance in the 90s, then cellular in 2000. Now it has created the subsidiary Credo Mobile. The company operates as a for-profit business, which is privately owned, but with but most of the employees own the stock, so it doesn't have to bow to Wall Street pressures. They use their profits to help support causes they believe in. So far, the amount of money donated is $17 million and counting. Social enterprises also can be nonprofits like Goodwill Industries, which last year turned donations from 79 million people into revenue that provided job training to 4.2 million people. And by reselling donated clothes, furniture, household goods, they divert an estimated 2 billion pounds from landfills every year. Again, goddess ideals. <clears throat> the idea of social enterprises catching on in the business world in the U.S. with the emergence of benefit corporations, also known as B Corps, which are designed. I'm going to skip that. But B Corps are similar in design to another kind of company called LC3s. The LC3 is a hybrid between the nonprofit and for-profit models and that it essentially is a profit-generating entity with a socially beneficial message. B Corps and LC3s create a legal foothold for more sustainable kind of business. The U.S. helped create a system in post-war Germany for work consuls where workers are elected from companies to help manage how the business is run. That means the councils help determine core issues like when to open, close, who gets what shift, who gets laid off, who gets fired. Germany has also co-determined boards, which give workers a voice in governance. Companies with more than 2,000 employees have half of their boards composed of workers. Empowering work employees has proven a successful business model elsewhere, like the John Lewis Partnership, which has been in the U.K. since 1920, and it's grown to over 30 department stores and more than 200 supermarkets with a revenue of $13.4 billion. The business is uh, employee-owned, all work Workers get to share the profits and vote for the governing council and company's board. This firm has a written constitution printed up and publicly available which states that the company's purpose, get this, sit down, is to support the happiness of all its workers. Yes, the purpose of the company is to support the happiness of all its workers. You know, I've been saying forever, you know, where in the United States is our model of 
quality of our life. You know, nobody ever talks about quality of life. Anyway, there are ways to do this. This article talks about that. Organizations can be run with employee owners or other kinds of members. The London Symphony, for instance, is owned by the musicians who play in it. Barcelona uh, soccer team and the Green Bay Packers football team are community-owned. Mutual insurance companies are owned by policyholders, and credit unions are owned by depositors. Employee-owned businesses and cooperatives have merged in the green business world with great success uh, as well. Community-owned forests in Mexico support indigenous people, protect the environment, and prevent illegal logging. In Denmark, community-owned wind farms have jump-started wind energy, supplying 20% of the country's power. In Minnesota, MinWind is a former-owned wind development company that's grown to 350 members. So there is a new vision. We can shift out of what doesn't work anymore. There are different legal and social structures that can help to feed this growing new economy. In Quebec, a solidarity or social economy was created to help nonprofits and cooperatives, and it gets uh, popular and government support. Spain, for instance, is home to Mondrag and Cooperative Corporation, which is a network of more than 100 cooperatives employing 100,000 workers. This cooperative model helps support new business ventures. If a firm is struggling in its first year, interest rates are lower to help it instead of flagging the business as a high risk and jacking up interest rates like we do here. So they don't go corporate raid in the company like Mitt Romney to make money. So what can we do here in the United States to, to spur the development of social and ecological conscious business? What, uh, uh, what kind of economy is suited for living inside a human being? Well, it's not an endlessly expanding economy. It's not an economy designed to serve the few at the expense of the many like we have now, you know, the 1% up at the top. It's an economy that's generative, that's life-serving in its purposes. How do we generate the conditions for life to continue to thrive? Well, the answer will not likely be just one answer, but a compilation and a diversity of different business models that are consistent with supporting workers, protecting the environment, and serving the broader social good. I'd sure like to hear somebody like, uh, you know, somebody like uh, Tara bring this article to the people on Fox News and make their, um, their heads uh, just explode. Well, um, thank you for listening to those two articles. I think, um, you know, I think they're both important in their own way, and they speak to the idea of uh, what I believe is Bible ecology versus goddess ecology. Bible ecology is uh, the word of God has told in mankind, has told mankind that they are entitled to dominate women and nature and culture versus goddess ecology, which I believe is much more nurturing. It's for the many, not the few. It's about equality of the genders. Anyway, you see the contrast there. And um, actually, uh, the Sacred Salon I'm going to do the first uh, the first week of June, I'm going to get into that a little bit more. I'm going to talk about what would um, a goddess Bible, but I'd rather call it the Book of Gaia, what would, the, what would be in the Book of Gaia? Um, what could we put in there that would take goddess mythology and what we know from Mother Earth and nature and show us how to live? Um, in fact, that's uh, some of the class. Uh, I'm going to get into that a little bit. The class I'm teaching Sunday, um, how to live a goddess-inspired life, because I really do believe we can take goddess myth, we can take what nature teaches us with um, 
and 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 we actually will have uh, commandments, shall we say? We don't want to call them commandments, uh, but you know what I'm saying. It, it will give us values and benchmarks for living. So. Uh, with that said, listeners, I would like to uh, thank you for tuning in uh, tonight, and I hope you'll be uh, back with me next week. Uh, as I said, uh, I'll have Amalia from uh, the Goddess Studio with me. We're going to be talking about magic and manifestation, and uh, we'll have uh, Will Moore uh, talking about uh, we need an ISIS uh, uh, revolution, which uh, I don't disagree with. So, I'll close the show with uh, with our mottos, uh, the two quotes, when, one from author uh, uh, Schopenhauer uh, from the, the 19th century German philosopher. He said, uh, all truth passes through three stages. First, it's ridiculed. Second, it is violently opposed. And third, it is accepted for being self-evident. And the second from Gandhi, first they ignore you, then they laugh at you, then they fight you, then you win. I think I took those uh, two mottos as uh, sort of our, uh, those sayings as our motto because uh, so many people have said, oh, you know, things can never change. Well, things can change. Things are changing. And if you think they don't change, I just invite you to think back. If you were St. Paul in Ephesus, and this is documented in the Bible, St. Paul was in Ephesus trying to get the people to get rid of their goddess Artemis. Well, he was lucky to get out of Ephesus with his life. Um, if you were a pagan in Rome uh, in the Colosseum, well, you wondered if Christianity was ever going to take hold. So my point is, things change. Uh, how long ago did we never did we ever think uh, we would have a black president? How long ago could blacks not even play um, baseball? Uh, you think about all the changes our country has seen. Um, you know, we have civil rights now. We are working toward women's equality. We are working towards gay rights. Um, as Jean Houston said uh, in, a, in a recent show, we have made such incredible progress in a short period of time, even though it seems like we're sort of creeping at a snail's pace. Things do change. Things can change. Things will change. And uh, I believe uh, it is going to change to more of a, um, a goddess-oriented society. The Dalai Lama said it would be Western women who would save the world. Well, I'd like to tweak that a little bit. I think it will be goddess theology, the sacred feminine ideals, the mythology of goddess and nature that uh, shows us uh, a, a way toward a sustainable future. So I want to thank you for tuning in, listeners, and um, I will close out tonight's show uh, because we have some time with a piece that uh, I don't always uh, have a lot of time uh, to play because, um, uh, you know, we're usually so short on time, but because we have it tonight, uh, let me play the full cut of Diva Haley's Kali. Uh, that's from her Sacred Alchemy uh, DVD. So this is Kali by Diva Haley, Sacred Alchemy DVD. So here's Kali, our goddess of social justice, closing off the show for tonight. Thank you, listeners. Uh, be back with me next week. Good night. Have a great week.
It's Mickey's Halloween Party at Disneyland Park. Be so cool. Mickey's Halloween party at Disneyland Park is on very special nights, September 23rd through October 31st. Visit Disneyland.com slash party for ticket prices and details. Space is limited. Boom. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.